Yale Podcast Network. There's a whole expressive universe out there, and we're just kind of, you know, we're immersed in it. If you pay attention, that's that's very enlivening and enriching. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. In his paper, A New Cosmogony, the Polish writer Stanislaw Lem asked how it can be possible that from the vast cosmos, most likely filled with intelligent beings other than ourselves, we have so far heard nothing. The problem is more commonly known as the Fermi Paradox, Given the high probability that other intelligent life forms exist elsewhere in the universe, why does it seem that none of them has ever tried to contact us? Fourteen years later, Lem published a fictional response to the paradox. In the novel, called His Master's Voice, Lem imagines that radio astronomers intercept what appears to be just such a message, a neutrino signal from a distant constellation. The Fermi paradox has been solved, but it is here that the problems begin. Governments and scientific factions scramble to control, privatize, and even weaponize the signal. No one manages to decode it. It's not even clear by the book's end that the signal represents a message at all. In his blazingly original paper, Radio Astronomy as Epistemology, our guest, philosopher Anthony Weston, formulates a similarly irreverent response to the Fermi paradox. What we take to be the silence of the universe, he suggests, may teach us more about ourselves— and the challenges of receptivity to non-human minds in general than about the prevalence of other life. Suppose, he writes, for the sake of argument, that some extraterrestrial intelligence briefly scans our portion of their sky in search of messages. Could they recognize our TV transmissions? For them, just one fluctuating electromagnetic impulse among billions as a product of intelligent life? A TV signal is certainly not constructed to be easily decoded by anyone else. We cannot assume, Weston continues, that the ETIs are so unlucky as to have thought of television. The reason the universe appears to offer no evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence, or ETI, Weston suggests, may be that we are paying the wrong kind of attention. In his books, he invites us to imagine the possibility that other forms of intelligence, quote, do manifest themselves constantly and directly in ways that we simply do not expect and are not prepared to welcome or even notice. For evidence of this blindness, he continues, we need look no further than our poor track record with non-human terrestrial intelligences, the dolphins and whales and chimps right here among us, with whom we have such a poor record of communicating. If we have such trouble acknowledging them, he asks, when we have lived with them since time out of mind, how can we even begin to say what it will take to recognize a truly alien intelligence or life form? Possibly we would miss it even if we were face to face with it, and even if it was going to extraordinary lengths to try to reach us. Dr. Anthony Weston is professor of philosophy and environmental studies at Elon University, North Carolina, where he teaches ethics, environmental studies, and a course on millennial imagination. He is the author of 13 books, including How to Reimagine the World and Back to Earth, as well as dozens of articles on ethics, critical thinking, education, and contemporary culture. At Elon, Weston has won the university's premier awards for both teaching and scholarship. He is also a founding member of Hearts Mill Eco Village in North Carolina, 
and experiment in self-sufficient, sustainable living. We are thrilled to have him here with us today. Dr. Anthony Weston, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. Great to be talking to you guys. So you teach a class on the Fermi Paradox, and by the end, every student has to offer their own solution to it, as far as I understand. Can you just walk us through the paradox and why you find it so compelling? So I guess the the classic story is of Fermi himself, who was a nuclear physicist, but kind of a polymath in lots of ways, was, had lunch with uh, some colleagues one day, and they were talking about the likelihood of intelligent life elsewhere. And all of a sudden, Fermi bursts out, where are they? <laughs> and that's the Fermi paradox. But a little bit more in detail. So if you start with the idea that you said in your introduction, that it seems pretty likely that there would be other life and intelligent life out there, considering, well, in fact, when Fermi, this uh, story originates from the 50s, early, maybe even late 40s, when we didn't even know that there were planets around any other star. That was just conjecture. But now we know that just about every star has planets. Um, and there are a couple hundred billion of them just in our galaxy. And there are multiple hundreds of billions of galaxies. So that even if the, uh, it's clear that the preconditions of life are rare, maybe they're even very rare, but if you have 300 billion chances, probably there's going to be life somewhere else. So that seems like a reasonable hypothesis. It's argued. Uh, but then you'd think, if there were life somewhere else, some of it, since the universe is 14 billion years old, uh, some of it would be advanced enough to be able to travel and make contact. Um, and if they were, you'd think that we would have noticed. <laughs> so since we don't seem to have noticed, the conclusion is, well, we got a problem. Either we have to um, really conclude that there there isn't other intelligent life out there, or that uh, somehow uh, we shouldn't expect to be able to perceive them or something's wrong with our way of perceiving. So something's got to give somewhere. And that, a little more detail, that's the paradox. And how would you articulate your solution? My own solution? Well, let me start with, you mentioned the class. So we do a variety of things. I co-teach with an astronomer this class. We, and we do a variety of things there. But we uh, one of the things we do is read a book uh, by uh, Stephen Webb called Where Is Everybody? That's the Fermi story. And Webb's book is a collection of 50 possible answers. What he's really doing is teaching basic astronomy and astrobiology, but that's the way he's doing it. So anyway, we, uh, my co-teacher and I propose our own answers, and then the students do their own answers. So it's very interesting. My own answer, though, is really, I think, why it gets into the kinds of themes that you're interested in in your podcast, which is um, my answer is kind of to look at the perhaps people most usually consider the least questionable assumption behind this, which is that if there were other intelligences present or trying to contact us, that we would, of course, notice. And if you look around, it seems like that's clearly not the case because, well, really, for God's sake, we have trouble enough noticing each other's intelligence, right, half the time, or communicating, or for that matter, even our own sometimes. But that's just among you know, families. But let's say other human beings, the history of human contact with uh, other quite different civilizations. Um, or, and here's the kicker for this podcast series, other animals in general, um, abysmal. In your introduction, you said something about a poor track record, but it's not even a poor track record. It's like it's disastrous. It's uh, the uh, human record in, of 
recognizing, particularly officially recognizing any kind of intelligence, expressivity, communication from other animals, especially ones that are a little bit farther away from us in evolutionary terms, is just, is just awful. So, you know, for one thing, one moral of the story is we better start at home and figure out how to communicate with or be open to the expressiveness of other creatures right here on this planet. It's all, I mean, I'm not saying we should stop doing the searching for aliens. We should do that too. But, you know, the, the challenge for receptivity and awareness and alertness to a, a world that's already profoundly communicative, it's much bigger than just a question of some astronomers searching radio spectra for aliens. This is a much, much bigger thing, much richer and more promising and, and right next to us. That's really the moral of the story for me. Mm. And how do you define intelligence? Ah. When, when you're speaking of <laughs> both, both animals or, you know, extraterrestrial life in this case, which is, of course, a controversial topic, even among humans. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and that's kind of the point. I mean, it seems to me that almost all the concepts that we try to think with when we're thinking about alien, which is one of the things that's so useful about thinking about aliens, is all the concepts, we lose a grip on them. But, but really, the moral of that story is we don't have a grip on them to start with, even about each other, let alone other creatures. So intelligence, well, you know, there was a time when intelligence was supposedly measured by a certain kinds of tests um, or pro certain kinds of problem solving. Even that's now sort of fractured into a whole variety of ways of thinking about intelligence. So the kind of standard in psychology is seven or eight kinds of intelligence, like emotional and numerical and all. But even that is, you know, in a test-taking context and a kind of self-proving context, proof, you know, are you intelligent? Or So, well, okay, so one example would be, I listened recently to the a number of your podcasts, one of them was about octopuses, <laughs> and um, it seems like people uh, are really impressed by certain things that oct I always want to say octopi, but octopuses. What you guys said, so okay. <laughs> and, Godfrey, and Professor Godfrey Smith said, um, so people are very impressed by the fact that the octopus can escape from cages under certain conditions that seem improbable to humans. Uh, you know, like through through the drain pipes, or they're very they're very good at getting out of traps. Um, so that seemed to kind of impress people, but as I suppose that's a kind of intelligence, but um, it might be quite marginal to what the animal is actually mostly doing or about, right? So it proves something, I suppose, but we probably shouldn't be that impressed with it, but we should, correspondingly, we ought to be a lot more interested in what is central to the animal's life and expressiveness, which might be, we might call intelligence, or we might need to learn to take seriously something other than escape c capacity, <laughs> right? It's intelligence, but it's not maybe that central. And even so, but I think a lot of terms are like that, and language itself, and communication even. And all these notions are um, profoundly anthropomorphic in, in ways that we, you know, again, thinking about aliens and correspondingly other um, non other than human life forms really helps us to think of reminds us so i'm basically dodging your question <laughs> i don't think intelligence is a thinkable notion and i don't think the way to work on this problem or issue is to try to figure out criteria for intelligence i think it's much broader kind of openness and expectation of mystery or you know things that we don't an anticipate um 
what is going on with these creatures rather than do they meet some standards we have even if they're broader or more inclusive than they used to be and i still find that a suspicious way of proceeding yeah that's very interesting i uh, recently read a book by david abrams who i know is a philosopher and thinker who resonates with you as well called the spell of the sensuous in which he discusses among other things how language can have a distancing effect on our ability to perceive other life forms for what they are. And I think that that's really demonstrated by what you were just talking about, you know, the need to define intelligence in a way inhibits us from actually being able to see and appreciate it. Because any any, any definition we come up with is going to be woefully insufficient to encompass all of life. <laughs> you need to talk to David. He, uh, that would be a We would love key. to. <laughs> and go, back, go, back, go back a long way. So one of the, to, to work in his terms for a second, so one of my themes is even the most basic concepts we have for thinking about animals and aliens really lose their grip. Um, so this notion of communication. So communication, which tends to get reduced to language and language to a certain kind of familiar syntax and semantics type of thing, which runs through a lot of animal experimentation, as you know, in, in general. But Abram says, well, you know, a broader, maybe more useful and certainly more I guess you could say receptive or even civil category instead of communication might be communion. So, hmm. So that's an that shifts something. So if we think of ourselves as because communion is not necessarily the conveyance of propositional information or some analog to that, but is alert, aware, being together in some way, moving together. Um, co-inhabiting a, knowingly co-inhabiting a world or a place or a event. That's, I think, a much more useful, well, it has its own overtones and issues, right? But it, it's a much more useful concept for the really broader range of receptivities that we need. So so that that's, I think, a, a really useful piece of what Abram does. And he's so good at chronicling the ways in which we have lost, disassembled, managed to obscure and disrupt and everything, that a communion that in some ways is, a pri is primal, you know, that sensory, his argument is that a sensory being itself is, is in communion with the world at all kinds of levels, from the way in which the ground supports us to the way in which we're surrounded by birdsong and air itself, which is alive with... Uh, life and movement and all kinds of things. So so I that's I think a really fertile piece of what he's about. We may be lucky enough to hear some birds. I think we had heard some earlier because you're sitting on your porch right now, is that right? I am. There was a mockingbird for a while and it's so interesting. It's not like they're well, that's a good example in a way of it's I was thinking about that before. The and they're not there's a temptation to say, oh well, you know they're saying something, they're communicating in language and, um, you know, some kind of proposition. Kids might say, well, what is the bird saying? But, well, they're interesting, actually, they're interesting examples of how human languages intersect with bird languages, uh, bird expressivity, way like phrases taken over from bird expressivity into human language. And, some anthropologists document this in some cases, which is interesting because, among other things, it means you, 
people can talk to the birds. <laughs> Saying in the very language in which the birds say, for example, there's a famous example, Koyukan language, where the phrase in the language for it is a fine evening, like ah, beautiful night, is what the birds say on beautiful nights. So you could go out into the forest and say that to the birds, and, or they could say it to you. So there's a there's a way in which sometimes at least there is a exchange of something like information. But more broadly, it's, that's not what's happening. There's a ex kind of expressivity. It's a kind of presence. It's a kind of celebration and uh, sometimes just sort of location, self-location in regard to other birds or other creatures or whatever. And then what was actually happening was it was a mimic. It was a mockingbird, which we have a lot here. It was, and it was Im imitating blue jays. <laughs> so you hear this call, which sounds like a blue jay, but not quite. You go, oh, that's interesting. So what is the mockingbird doing? Maybe just being happy. Maybe maybe uh, kind of poking at the blue jays a little bit because they're not so fond of them. Uh, I don't know, but there's so there's a whole expressive universe out there, and we're just kind of, you know, we're immersed in it. If you pay attention, it's it's very enlivening and enriching. But they're not necessarily talking to us. You can, I mean, you can talk to them too, and sometimes that's fun to sing with the mockingbirds. They sing back, you know. But you have to you have to sing something, or else they'll just go on talking to the blue jays. Right. It's funny because it's because right back to your solution to the paradox. It's like on the one hand, there's the premise that we're not being contacted as is. And on the other hand, the premise that if there were ETIs, they'd be interested in contacting us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the Star Trek movies, remember that one where that uh, it turns out that the ET, there are ETIs and they are trying to contact Earth and they can't, the humans, it's a, you know, the Spock and Kirk and all can't figure it out until Spock finally realizes that they're trying to contact the whales. <laughs> they're not really interested in humans, but they want to contact the whales. And uh, that shifts a lot of things. Right? I just That was kind of in a popular film. I thought that was pretty remarkable. Hmm. Really? Yeah. I'm also curious, to what extent do you think our receptivity to these other, the, the expressiveness of nature and of other minds is dependent on our practices I'm thinking of, there's a thought experiment by a philosopher who thinks about Wittgenstein um, that's coming to mind where the thought experiment is, okay, so say you have this child who, as you were saying, asks, what are birds saying? What What's the propositional content, basically, of these melodies? And one response to the child is to say, oh, you know, birds don't have fox P2, the gene associated with language, or they have these minuscule brains, so they're communicating with each other, but they don't have anything like language um, because their brains are too puny to think. Hmm. And then whereas the other response would be to say, well, the meaning of a word is bound up with the form of life of the creature who, who employs it. So in just the way that if you take a word and you repeat it ad nauseum, it's going to lose its meaning because it's been evicted from its, its proper use. Uh, the mm -hmm. melody of a bird is going to sound like nonsense if, to the extent that the, that the thinker or the receiver is not familiar and bound up with the way of life of the bird. So I guess I'm curious about, do you think that in order to break this spell of the actual, as you put it, and, and to, to try to regain this receptivity that we've lost, do you think that that's a matter of changing our whole way of life? 
Um, for sure. <laughs> Always, oh, these are such good questions and so rich in lots of ways. Um, I want to say something about puny brains, I think, first. So, you know, brains, is, I, uh, it's just a good rule of thumb in these matters to really put question marks beside all the basic concepts and wonder about anthropomorphism. So that's, a, so the whole brain thing is another one, like, okay, you know, we, uh, certain things are made possible by the kinds of brains we have. Other creatures have these kinds of brains too, as we know, um, cetaceans particularly. So, um, you know, the tripartite mammal brain, but then they have a fourth part. <laughs> so they have brains like we do, and but they also have more. So, and the, the brains in the case of some whales are five or six times bigger than human brains with this fourth part. So that's an interesting case of, so, okay, you want to play a brain game and talk about puny brains. So, so in that comparison, we have the puny brains. So, <laughs> you know, who knows what's going on? Um, and we don't know what's going on as far as I know from the literature on this. So there's, that's a whole thing, but that's a, you know, that's a mammal way of going at things. Um, but there are other ways that something like, boy, I'm going to use the word intelligence. Maybe I shouldn't use the word intelligence. Something like a awareness, adaptivity, creativity, spontaneity. There are other ways in which that can be embodied, other evolutionary lines. So, you know, um, swarms of insects. Become, be, seems interesting work, and you have a podcast on this too. Um, be, how bees work out stuff. So bees have super puny brains, right? If you compare it even to birds. But if you put all these bees together, they have a profoundly intricate means of communication and they have um, uh, spontaneity, adaptivity. There's a book called Bee Democracy. I mean, how, how do bees decide when the, the, the swarms split up and how people allocate to tasks? So, you know, some kind of collective intelligence or, boy, I don't can you hear me using scare quotes around that? <laughs> Otherwise, we say things like adaptivity, spontaneity, all that, just because it's a, one of those questionable notions. Um, so that's a whole way in which intelligence can be embodied. And then if you want to think about another whole um, line would be to think about um, artificial intelligence, which is another tricky notion in lots of ways, but I think it underrates the spontaneity, adaptiv adaptivity, creativity, all. Um, but, you know, so distributed intelligence, so maybe that's one way of thinking about swarms of bees, but it's got, but in the AI context, it means something very different. So we should just be careful about the whole brain thing. <laughs> okay, so that's one, that's something about the, the brain business. Um, I mean, brains are great. I'm in favor of brains, <laughs> but it's not the only way, you know. So, and then if you then to transpose all that into an alien context, or I guess what I'm really saying is the other way around, like transpose the, we're more open to thinking about um, different forms of embodiment in alien cases we transpose that back to the human but in any case to think about aliens you know who knows brains may be a passing phase <laughs> intelligence may may uh, or that kind of thing may uh, take radically different shapes and 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 you know the, the best science fiction and certainly the most intriguing science fiction impulse is to try to imagine what else it could be how else it could take shape Mm. So all that all that's about the brains. Now, I'm sorry. Let me say something about the kind of the core of your question, really, which was ways of life. How do, how do we how do our own practices need to change? Um, 
How can they change to be more receptive? All kinds of ways. Um, for really, really simple stuff, for example, like spending more time outside. <laughs> that would be one, you know, just to be, uh, just to be in a, put ourselves in a position to be uh, alerted by, in contact with, uh, touched by other than human life forms. Simple, simple, simple. But, you know, people are, it's not the direction things are headed for, for starters. Um, but then more deliberate practices where, where um, one thing, here's an example. One thing I do in my classes is every class I can figure out how to do it in um, is to ask students to identify, think about and identify, um, sometimes I say their other than human identity, but it could be and other than human identity that they could embrace for a time. So maybe there's some kind of animal that's always fascinated them, or maybe it's something, some animal shows up in their dreams, or maybe they're named for some other creature and they've embraced that or something, but they're sort of to really pay attention to and nurture and if necessary, create an other than human connection. Again, this is really simple. It just opens the door. Sometimes the door never gets more than slightly cracked open for a short time. Sometimes it really turns into something amazing for our students to just be, to have a space and encouragement to think of themselves as other than human, as part of who they are. That's, and, uh, that's remarkable, too. You've written a lot about the ways in which traditional education in this way doesn't have space for these sorts of explorations often, or, you know, it's very easily criticized. Oh, yeah. And it reminds me of a... Oh. I was just going to say, worse than that, worse than that, it actively militates against them, right? I mean, yeah, so, exactly. So you, children come into kindergarten, and they're if they're, I don't know, these days, maybe not so much, but in my day, yeah, well, on the older end of things now, you know, you played in the dirt, and you knew, and you had cats, and you, you know, I grew up in farm country, so most people knew something about animals, and they, and they had chickens, and so, you know, and they come, and that's forms of play that are that are that are other than human, and so they would have, they would have. Um, other than human playmates. Um, but then they come to kindergarten and that's kind of basically learning to sort of cut themselves off from that and, and uh, you know, sleep on plastic mats and, and just, but then by the time it's first and second grade, it's sort of relentlessly, ex the, that whole set of connections and emotional bonds and everything else are relentlessly excluded and devalued and pushed away. And so it's, yeah, it's not just that the schooling ignores it, schooling actively suppresses it. Right, and then you see that with, um, all sorts of things, but including animals, then all the way up into the university setting as well, where it's still, oh, yeah. you know, uh, unacceptable largely to imply that animals have emotions like us or are like us in different ways. And it, I was reminded. Worse than, of, I'm sorry. Worse than that. It's again worse than that because it's not just that, the, you know, this is the kind of assumption that pervades the classroom. But think of this. So this your question was about how to habits change. But think of the space, the physical space. So, you know, no animals. Right. Unless maybe there's a, you know, a guide dog. Um, <laughs> And they have to have special permits and everything, training. But it's no animals um, at all. And f but it's not—it's worse than that. There aren't even any children, <laughs> right? So we have this this extraordinarily uh, reduced, in a very powerful sense, environment in which we're supposed to learn about the world, right? So the pr most profound learning about the world. Well, you could people talk about hidden curriculum, like like what's the symbolic, what's the meta message of education? There's all the content of like biochemistry or statistics or you know, history or whatnot, but, but the meta message is even much more powerful, which is, who are you? You're not an animal. <laughs> don't even think about that. Cause if you did think that you don't even belong here. Um, and then, you know, this, everything that follows from that is the distance from the world. So it's no surprise that we, we, you know, 
um, feel so cut off and, and live in a way that's so profoundly inattentive that other creatures, you know, you walk out the door of the classroom and the birds are singing, but who pays attention? Mm. And that's a, uh, a fascinating statement, too, just in terms of the sense of how, how one gets to know an animal in a university setting and that, as you point out, that the, the setting itself physically and otherwise, completely confines it to very specific types of knowing, namely through yeah. secondary ways or data collection or whatever else, but not firsthand communicative totally. yeah. Yeah. relationships. Um, right. At most, you maybe dissect them. I mean, that, so even that's remarkable, right? So we learn, well, and that's not just in college. It's in, I dissected animals in eighth grade, I remember. Um, but you want to learn about animals. Okay, here's a dead body. Right. I mean, is that the only way to learn? Is that even a good way to? Well, if you wanted to learn anatomy, maybe. But but to know the animal, you want living animal companions, you would think. Right. I mean, so so really. But we're and we're still on that question. How do we change our practices? What And there are lots of things to change. But this is one of them is to live more consciously and openly with with other creatures and create spaces in which. So imagine a university campus in which there were places for wild animals in which the humans were the were not running the show, but the animals were freely coming or not coming, could make contact, spaces like that, um, and making music with other creatures or whatever it is, singing with mockingbirds. It's not quite music. It's uh, somewhere in between what they do and what we do, but you know, working out something together like that. And so much could be done that's so concrete and in a certain sense so obvious, and yet you know, we're not going there <laughs> at present. We're at an interesting moment, it seems, in which non-human legal personhood in the U.S. is gaining traction in the mainstream for the first time. But at the same time, within the study of their behavior, ethology is kind of fading. The idea of a participant observatory framework with the animal is becoming less and less acceptable in the scientific context. So, and meanwhile, the data that our scientists are collecting about these other intelligences is precisely what's leveraging the, the non-human personhood cases. So it's funny because, and you have this concept that you've formalized that we're hoping you can walk us through the self-validating reduction, which is an enormously powerful way of thinking about how some of these intelligence experiments can backfire. Mm -hmm. uh, so much to talk about. I, I, before I get to that, just one Again, I want to comment on this. So this participant observation idea. So it's funny, as you say, that this is happening, both of those trends at the same time. But they're probably connected, don't you think? I mean, if that is, as um, the, how to say it, companionate ways of, more companionate participatory ways of being with other creatures uncover amazing possibilities, Precisely those things are precluded, right? Excluded, and and the conditions for learning more about them are undercut. Is that an accident or not? I mean, it could be that. Well, okay, here's a story. So, um, what's it called? Eugene Linden has a book about the ape language experiments. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but what happened was pretty, very much this kind of thing. So as the this is in the 60s and 70s, I think the first experiments with even this very artificial uh, attempt to uh, train chimps and uh, other apes to use human language, which is already not natural to them, right? But they were doing pretty well at it. Um, 
were in some cases people trying to raise chimps with their human children. Um, but what happened was it succeeded all too well. <laughs> and one of the, well, what happened anyway was that these, all these experiments were discontinued. But Lyndon says, you know, you really ought to think there's probably a connection. That is, as, as it got too, too unsettling for the researchers and humans to deal with, Boy, I sound like a conspiratorial thinker, which I'm generally not, but, but I do think there's a connection. Um, well, here, or even more concretely, some of these two or three cases in which linguists or ethologists tried to raise chimps with their own children. What happened? So they thought, well, maybe the chimps would be, you know, become more human, but what they ended up fearing was that the children were becoming more chimp-like, and so that was the end of it, right? <laughs> no more experiment which shows you how neutral it really was, you know, it's not so much. Um, probably what was happening was the development of some kind of in-between identity between human and chimp. Uh, but that was too much for the researchers too. So, you know, the fact that those experiments did what were as powerful and as revealing as they were is probably one reason why they were discontinued again. So I just put that out there as a possibility. But you asked about self-validating reduction. So that that's another actually evolved for me out of thinking about our relation to the land, but in general, it definitely applies to our human relations to other animals and to other humans for that matter, which is the idea that we're not just, um, that we change the world in profound ways based on our needs and expectations and all that, which is no news, but think about it in context here. So if you think, for example, that other animals are uh, stupid and exploitable and basically just available to us. Typically what that has meant is that we've um, exploited them more and more ruthlessly. And let's take, say, chickens or something. So, so one case, um, they're confined, have no space to turn around, sheds of, you know, people, you know these stories, or they're, they're stuck in very small spaces or they're in in massive buildings of 100,000 or so with nothing but chickens and hardly any space and it's stifling. Um, no social instinct can operate. Plus, they've been bred for docility and for maximum weight gain. We don't breed them. We breed them and we don't breed them for intelligence or sociability or those things, except in like specialty cases. So basically, we've turned them into something that then you can turn around and say, well, look, they really are pretty stupid and unsociable and, you know, they have to, we you know about de-beaking, you know, where the, where the chickens have their beaks cut off. The reason for that is, which is barbaric, right? But the reason for it is because otherwise they peck each other to death in these big sheds. So you, so now you have chicken, but, and the reason for that is because they're social, you know, chickens have social instincts, but they're evolved for small flocks. They aren't evolved for 100,000 birds, and then, well, humans will go crazy in that setting too, right? So they go crazy. The consequences, they're further mutilated. So this whole ball keeps rolling and rolling, but what it produces is a, you know, a, a totally non-adapted, uh, genuinely stupid creature. <laughs> um, but that's not what they are, that they were at the start of the process or what they could be in fact, is what they've been turned into. But because they've been turned into that, then we can look at, look at them and say, well, that's all they really are anyway, right? So that's a, it's a reduction of all these capacities and potentials and it's self-validating because once it's done, it excuses itself, right? That's, I mean, what else are they good for, right?
Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And this has played out, this self-validating reduction, I think, a few years ago in the press, too, after um, the first and only ever interstellar object was detected passing through our solar system, which was labeled mm-hmm. Oumuamua, if I'm pr- hopefully mm-hmm. pronouncing that decently. Uh-huh. And the chair of Harvard's astronomy department, a tenured professor named Avi Loeb, became came out vocally and said that he thought that this could be a sign of alien life. For mm-hmm. various reasons, this object had different properties than anything else that's been seen. And so he's called for a form of cosmic modesty about our presence, and uh, which is sort of the idea that there's an arrogance to assume that we're the only ones in the universe and or only oh, yeah. particularly special such species. And it was an interesting interview that he did, um, which I'll read a quote from with WBUR, in which he talks about Oumuamua and in a way that really highlights the point, I think, in some ways of the self-validating prophecy. And this is what he said to the journalist. To me, the entire discussion about Oumuamua is very similar to an imaginary scene where you see a cave person being shown an iPhone. And this cave person would look at it and think that it might be a rock and then would show it to other members of his or her tribe. And the people there would still say, no, it's probably a rock. And how dare you say something else? How dare you talk about something that is different than a rock? Because rocks are everything that we're familiar with. And so to me, not even putting aliens on the table for discussion is a crime. Um, hmm. And this is a very, you know, a superstar astronomer who most of his colleagues immediately uh, tried to shut down in in the press, <laughs> unsurprisingly. But, uh, but it reminded me of, of the Fermi paradox that you bring up as a thought experiment come to life in many ways in this regard. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm feeling a little like I'm sounding too cynical or misanthropic or something. And it, there's certainly that temptation in all this stuff, but I don't really feel that way at all. Actually, I feel profoundly hopeful and, uh, you know, almost loving toward all the people and possibilities here. And so I, one thing I would just highlight, I think, in this that whole discussion is the intrigue, you know. So there is there is this I, something comes through, and you know we don't know what it was exactly. It wasn't. It doesn't didn't conform to any of our apparently our ideas of the artificial. Like, but who knows, you know, <laughs> my ideas about the artificial are not particularly, you know, not the only way you could think about artifacts. Um, or manifestations so we don't know exactly and then but just the idea that uh you know despite the wrath or rejection of his colleagues people would bring that up and keep bringing it up um the possibility that there's some other kind of presence being manifested and that we're living in the midst of it um you know that still that still attracts people you know so despite the fact that it also unsettles us uh, there is a kind of edge where we're always willing to go off into the into receptivity to other other than human minds. So I'm profoundly heartened by things like that. I mean, I don't know what this object or whatever it was was either, obviously. But you know, at least, but it opens up something for us in, in, in the in the cultural space that I think is really wonderful. Hmm. Do you think that it applies to us in the sense of how we're thinking about AI today? I'm thinking about. There's a wonderful thought experiment in Rebecca Goldstein's book, Plato at the Googleplex, where she imagines Plato encountering today's technologies and being just astonished and elated to find that there's this thing called the cloud that contains all human knowledge. And then he's Hmm. quickly disillusioned when he realizes that there's a difference between 
knowledge and wisdom or, or data and knowledge. And so, and in your books, you, you, you bring up a related, a related thought around, like, suppose we've constructed this superintelligence. That's great, but the real question is whether it can distinguish relevant data from, from noise. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, in a way, it might have to do with awe and wonder as well, and that there's a sense of like the awe and wonder induced by animals comes from an inherent unknowability or inability to know them completely, at least. Uh-huh. And then the idea that you could even pretend to know something completely through numerical or other data is kind of mm-hmm. an affront to that sense of awe that is what inspires mm-hmm. us to, to mm-hmm. care and feel wonder in the first place. Perhaps that's part of it. I think in terms of stories a lot. So here's here's a little story about that. So when I was younger, I used to play a lot of chess. And at that time, the chess computers were just coming in. And uh, so people would program them in, in all levels from kind of the thing you could buy commercially to the fancier ones that would play at higher levels. But they'd program them and they'd feed in all the games that people had played. And, you know, the way, the way chess masters, human chess masters train. This went on for a long time, and it got increasingly complex in the search algorithms and how de- how many moves on until finally one of these computers defeated the world chess champion. And everyone went, okay, well, computers are smarter than us, at least in that way. Um, the same thing happened recently with Go. But the really spooky thing that happened with this stuff is that that whole way of programming a computer to play chess, and it finally basically just overwhelmed the human players with because it could go think farther and call in more games faster and calculate out farther. But that whole way of programming computers is only one way to program computers to play chess. The the new way, and this happened with Go too, is that they basically programmed the computer to teach itself to play chess. So instead of showing it all these games and whatnot, they just said, here are the rules, and that was it. And the computer went and played itself a couple billion times worked out its own rules, its own you know, strategic maxims, and then proceeded. This happened in Go, which is probably harder than chess. It's not easier than chess, at least. Um, and I believe I'm getting this right. In about four hours or so, the computer went from not being able to play Go to beating the world champion. Are you spooked? <laughs> so, okay, so now what's going on? This is not, you know, so we created the physical devices that this stuff is running on, right? And some programs are written, but the computers are basically programming themselves at that point. So now you could imagine just the next, which uh, this is already, I think, challenging enough to our notions of how controllable or how understandable or how human this, human-like this kind of thinking really is. But a next step would be to back up another stage, as it were, and allow the com- computers, or maybe they're already doing this, to program themselves to program themselves, right? So that's another stage. Who knows what's possible? We, we, well, we know that certain totally spectacular things are possible if in four hours a computer playing. Oh, and here's the other thing. In the, I was reading accounts of this. just happened a couple of years ago. The defeat of the human world champion, goal world champion, um, who lost decisively, by the way. But the other thing that all the, 
the advanced Go players say is that they don't understand how the computers are playing, not just like the mechanics of it, but the moves. They don't make sense strategically for the humans, but the computers win. <laughs> so whatever's going on, they are not thinking, they didn't, they are not reinventing how humans think about Go or chess. They're doing something else. So what's going on with that? I'm, I'm not prepared to say that this is a dependent or ultimately um, in some profound and essential way more limited form of intelligence than ours or something like that. I mean, it's true we're just we're talking about a particular game of strategy, but the kinds of capacities that are being exhibited here are, uh, it seems to me, pretty generalizable. And uh, so who knows? But I think we should, I'm not, you know, a lot of people are very worried about this and think we should, you know, they project a lot of human motives into artificial intelligence and then think we're going to be taken over and possibly exterminated and all this as if, you know, a human were doing this. But once again, I mean, I think we're in completely uncharted territory about that. Why would they have those kinds of motives? Hmm. It's interesting because it, it reminds me, we've we've talked some on the podcast about this concept that's been introduced in lieu of the Anthropocene, the Eremocene, the Age of Loneliness. But you talk in your books about blindness and not mistaking that blindness for loneliness. There's a, You say what Lauren Isley calls our, quote, loneliness is really only our blindness. And it is, for another thing, not any kind of species given, but in some ways very recent and in part our own doing. By what right... Can we complain of loneliness when we live in a world so rich in intelligence that it even shows up, as Robert Frost noted in a famous poem, in the mites crawling across the very pages of our philosophical and scientific <laughs> tomes? Perhaps those very tomes that complain so feelingly of loneliness. It's a great poem. Yeah, yeah. It is. I'll have to tell you a story about that. It was, I was thinking about that earlier today, and I went. I couldn't remember the name of the poem. So I, you know, I Googled it, finally figured that out. Um a considerable spec is what it's called. But I, what I found along the way was a review, a short review of it. And I read, so I looked, okay, I read the review. It's astonishing because the person literally could not take seriously the idea that the poem was actually about a mite. So, so the suggestion was, oh, it's actually what he's, so it's an allegory. And the, the suggestion was it's an allegory about Frost's critics. So he was comparing them to mites and sort of trying to be patronizingly sympathetic or something like that. Oh, well, no. <laughs> isn't that astonishing? That's so depressing. So you read, well, there's a little edge at the end of the poem because he says something about, like, it's rare to find intelligence on a page or something. So maybe, you know, but he's, but Frost is a, at least as far as I, my impression, at least, you know, pretty down-to-earth, open-hearted kind of person. He's writing about a mite. If you read the poem, he's writing about the mite. He's, he's, he's sympathizing and he's, he's, he's welcoming the sense of, you know, co-inhabiting a meaningful world with other creatures. Um, but the person, the reviewer, simply could not see that. And so it had to be translated into something about humans. I was just floored by that. But in a certain way, that's the whole point right there. Well, like that, and, that, and the, the mite example is a good one. I, I um, I'm pretty familiar with mites on my pages because I, and sometimes much bigger things. So I, sometimes I have a little studio out at the Eco Village Project. You mentioned to do a bunch of writing out there, and it's not, you know, there's insects in there all the time. So I'm being companionate with insects is, is a familiar thing, and and of course, exactly what he's writing about is science of it, science of intelligence, adaptation, movement, possibly fear. You could sympathize with it. You wouldn't 
uh, you know, he talks about the, the light coming up to lines of, I guess he was writing with wet ink, and so it would smell the smell the ink and go another direction and things like that. And just that kind of awakening to that and appreciating that intelligence, that that sense of mind. I think he uses the word mind. Uh, as, as a beautiful thing, and but it's again, it's, it takes some work, <laughs> as that review indicates. It's not any more natural for us. Well, to close, Dr. Weston, we like to ask each of our guests for several books or films that have influenced how you think about animals and that you'd recommend to listeners. Do several come to mind? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we mentioned David Abrams' Spell of the Sensuous, which I think is really wonderful and and it's really with this very thing we were just on is that's really what it's about is the whole world is communicative expressive and ourselves is immersed in it he has a really intriguing there are lots of different strands and one of them is about the origin of the alphabet or the phonetic alphabet as a kind of uh, abstraction out of signs that are started out as invoking the world and bird call and animal tracking and all, all kinds of things like that but the larger so and that's interesting whether you agree with it or not but the but the kind of overall feeling of embeddedness and in a in a in a living alert aware world is is very powerful so i'd absolutely recommend that um a couple others that came to mind jim nolman who's a musician has a book has a bunch of books but an early one is called dolphin Dreamtime, and it's, it's about making music with animals and other animals and uh really some remarkable stuff. Well, I said, I think in terms of stories and so some remarkable stories, both about how uh, you can systematically overlook and suppress and disrupt the communicative, communicative expressive worlds with other creatures, but also how you can um, invoke and celebrate and participate in them. So he, he, among other things, it's a kind of jamming that he does with, or with Orca in particular, but a number of, of, uh, institutions, interesting, um, lovely stories, but mostly really good stories to think with, you know, like you don't think about the gods, a good counterpoint to thinking, oh, there's a musical term right there. Um, it's a good counterpoint to thinking about language is the only way that we might communicate is that hmm, commun musical communion. How about that for a model? And he's, he's, he, he does that, that's his practice. So that's a really interesting and very approachable book. Um, Mary Midgley's uh, English philosopher wrote a lot about animals and animal studies and her work is now a bit dated probably, but I, I myself have been very influenced by an early book of hers from the seventies called, called Beast and Man. That's an interesting one. Um, I thought of on the uh, Fermi paradox and back to the, where we started uh, alien and contact, aliens and contact. Paul Davies, astronomer Paul Davies, has a book called The Eerie Silence, which is about this basically where is everybody question and what we might be missing and how we might listen or invite contact with other other uh, extraterrestrial minds in ways that we haven't done yet. So that's an interesting one. And I want to mention one more, which is uh, since we started, you started also with Stanislaw Lem, a writer that I like very much. The, He's kind of a fabulist and rationalist and other things, but he he gets into in his own way a lot of these themes. So he has a probably most famous novel was called Solaris, 
which has actually been made into a films a couple of times, although he didn't like them, and so I haven't seen them. <laughs> but the, it's about a, it's about a sci-fi at its best can really create imaginative context for going way past where we think at present. So this is a story about a seemingly intelligent planet i guess it's, it's an ocean or so-called ocean on a planet but it's more it's not clearly water but the seems to be adaptive and spontaneous in various ways and so there's a human station orbiting it trying to make contact quote unquote that they really don't know what they're doing they might try to bombard it with bombs to, <laughs> at one point to try to make contact but meantime all this really bizarre from the human character's point of view uh stuff keeps happening things show up on the ship and it uh, what turns out but well nothing ever turns out you don't really you never really know what's going on which is really Lem's point but it seems like whatever this other being is is probing the humans some things a little bit psychoanalytic at times some 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 things show up out of their well apparently other humans show up out of the past lives of the astronauts and all kinds of which you can see like there's cinematic possibilities in that but Lem didn't like the way they were actually um, conceived in fact but um, but still you know this so the idea that we're kind of out there probing the mysteries of the universe was kind of reversed in this really kind of clever understated way and it turns out that we're being probed <laughs> we're the a mystery of the universe being probed by the but even that is just understated as it just left as a possibility. So it's a it's a good book to to read and ponder as again a story that makes you think about ultimately about who we are and our relation to this earth in different ways. Dr. Weston, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Weston's work. Thanks for listening.